this so we don't get any background feedback and uh, we'll get started so okay so um, welcome to talking Christianity apologetics where we seek to provide answers to both questions for uh, Christians and non-Christians alike Today's really a special day. It's something that I've actually really been looking forward to. Um, we've got Scott Smith on with us. Uh, he is a, a PhD um, in, in the area that we're talking about. And, and really, uh, this is going to be the start of a series that we're calling Rethinking the Extent of the Atonement. Um, if you have never thought about the atonement, this is something that's going to challenge your perspective. If you have thought about the atonement, it's something that's going to challenge your perspective. Uh, it doesn't matter if you are a Calvinist, if you're a particularist, if you are a provisionalist, if you're a partialist, or if you're even a Catholic, um, this is really something that's going to challenge your perspective on the atonement. So stay tuned with us, and uh, as always, please give us your feedback. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, so hey, if you are tuning in live right now, or if you tune in later at some point, please help us to get this message out there by sharing the link. Uh, you can like us um, online on Facebook. You can, you can like it on Twitter. You can share it on YouTube. Um, uh, on YouTube, make sure that you subscribe. Um, if you're if you're on our podcast, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Uh, that'll help us when it comes to the placement of the actual podcast for other people um, to find us. So uh, let me switch cameras here. I'm going to go to a different scene. And uh, we should be able to see Scott Smith uh, here with us. But if you would... Um, Guys, yeah, help us help us to share this. You can donate to the show if you feel so inclined. Obviously, every bit would help us to put the word out there. Um, it, there's there's time and money that it takes to invest in this. If you feel inclined to do that, you're more than welcome to. Uh, the way that you can do that is by uh, going to the podcast description um, portion um, in any given episode, and that'll give you the opportunity to click there to donate if you want to. Now, a couple other things real quick. Um, some of the upcoming episodes... Uh, we're starting a series here tonight with Scott on rethinking the extent of the atonement. Uh, it'll probably go four or five parts, so this will be part one. I'm going to make sure that we get it labeled for each part, and uh, you can really dissect each one of those because they should build off of each other. So um, something else to expect on October 30th, 
Uh, Jeff Riddle is going to be coming onto the podcast, and we're going to talk about um, what's really becoming uh, sort of a, a movement, whether it's a movement or whether it's becoming a movement. That's sort of debatable, but that would be um, what is he's calling the confessional text. Others have called it the ecclesiastical text, and uh, really it just comes down to uh, what your view of the preservation of the Word of God is. And so we're going to have Jeff Riddle on then, uh, and then kind of following up with that, uh, we're going to have James Snap on, and uh, he's he's going to give his perspective on uh, the text when it comes to the preservation of the text um, throughout the church. So, all right, now there's more in the works, and as I get more information on those, I'll be forwarding that information to you so that you can follow along and know what to expect as it comes. So, uh, but without further ado, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. So, Scott, we've got you on the screen. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast tonight, man. Hey, thanks, Josh, for having me. I appreciate it. I can't Glad tell to know you. you're interested. Oh, I cannot tell you how how excited I am, uh, really, uh, just to be able to to make this happen and for you being willing to do it. Um, you and I, we we connected probably I don't know two months ago or so on academia, and uh, you've got multiple articles um, that have been published on academia. Uh, but this one in particular, I was like, gosh, I would love to be able to sit down and talk with you. And if if it's something that'll work out, let's let's do a, a podcast on it. And I mean, you were more than willing to do that. Um, so I really appreciate so all of that has led up to this tonight. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, I want you to have a chance to become more familiar uh, with Scott and uh, kind of what his background is. And uh, what what led up to um, basically his dissertation on the extent of the atonement and and the term that he has coined um, for uh, his view on the extent of the atonement. So I don't want to put words in his mouth. Uh, I think that he'll be able to explain it a little better than I could. So Scott, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on yourself and uh, what led to the extent of the atonement and the work that you've put into it? Okay. Well, when I was a young Christian still. Uh, I was in undergraduate studies in college, and during that time, I was starting to teach a Sunday school class. My, my pastor felt like I had some skills and gifts in teaching, and so he was urging me into that direction. And uh, we we're doing a study in Romans, and during that study, as through my research, I, I encountered really for the first time uh, the different some of the different views on the extent of the atonement, and it it really caused for me uh, I don't know a crisis of faith so to speak. I I came to not want to teach because I felt like if I don't know what it is that I believe about this, why would I want to be teaching? I, I didn't want to be a false teacher. I was still a young Christian and felt like in, until I can get this resolved in my mind, I, I didn't want to teach. So it kind of paralyzed me somewhat for a number of years in being feeling comfortable with doing any kind of a teaching role or anything with church. I went back to school later uh, to a seminary, and during that time, I explored more the idea of the atonement. And it was in that time that, that the concept from 
as I was reading my scripture, came to me for the solution to my dilemmas. So tonight, I think one of my main points is I'm going to kind of talk about the theological differences in their views of atonement and how they articulate their views of scripture and then lead up to really what what it is that I discovered for myself that felt like this made everything come together for me clearly to be able to say this is what I believe about atonement. So, Well, I've got to tell you, um, after reading your dissertation and uh, even, even speaking with you over the phone for the first few times that we did, um, I've got to tell you, man, that's uh, that's the way that I describe it. It's the missing piece. It's the missing link when it comes to the atonement. And uh, just having that that answer for me. And uh, for those of you who are viewing, uh, maybe if you stick this out and you really listen to it, maybe if the, it, maybe it'll be that piece that you're looking for. Um, I've had I've had uh, different debates with Calvinists um, on this podcast. I've de- had different debates with um, King James only guys. I've had diff- di- just different topics um, that that we've that we've covered. Um, but when it comes to the extent of the atonement, this to me is just something that's so close to my heart uh, and understanding a little bit more about Christ, uh, understanding a little bit more about the work that he did and uh, really what it comes down to on, on the cross and, and what all, all of that meant. So um, if nothing else, man, I, I stink and I've, this is the missing link for me when it comes to the atonement. So, um, but what I, was, what I wanted to say was I've had, I've had Calvinists tell me, you know, give it two or three years and you're going to be a Calvinist. I've had, I've had Catholics tell me, Josh, in two or three years, you are going to be a Catholic. And uh, it, to me, it's just like, I can, I'm listening to these views when it comes to the the particular view or the provisionist view or the Catholic view on the atonement. And uh, I'm not going to give anything away, but I'm just saying, you guys have got to listen to this and let it just, just let it challenge you a little bit. So, but when you and I had first spoken, um, some of the feedback that you had given me was uh, you had watched the one of the debates that I did on limited atonement, and uh, one of the first things that you told me, it, it was when we spoke on the phone for the first time, you said, hey, yeah. your position that you were laying out in Second Peter was lacking, and I think you could use some improvement there. And right off the bat, I was like, holy cow, like, I like this guy. I mean, he's straight up and can just tell me. like, But I, you know what? I appreciate criticism. I'll be the first to tell you I don't have it all figured out. Um, so this will be a fun conversation. There's a lot for me to learn here, and uh, it, it's going to be a good time. So I appreciate that. But um, so you did say, and you mentioned it briefly in in your preface of, of the dissertation. You state that you struggled with the atonement to the point that you weren't comfortable preaching on something that you haven't settled in your own heart, and that you would not therefore preach until you had settled the matter. So I wanted to kind of lead into that a little bit. Why why is that so important to you, and why did it have such an impact on uh, whether or not you were comfortable to preach on the atonement until you had become settled on it in your own heart? Well, like I just said, I, it has to do with the fact that I I didn't want to be a false teacher, you know. And I, you know, I've, since then I've come to realize, you know, God gives grace to us all because no person has it all figured out, and every pastor's speaking, you know, a mix of truth and error as he's preaching probably because there's just things we know and things we don't know. And that's why people change their minds uh, as they're 
studying. Uh, we should let scripture change our mind. We should be open to letting scripture change our minds about our views. And uh, so I eventually got to the point where I wasn't so uncomfortable with the idea that, well, I might not have everything right, therefore I shouldn't teach. It's like, well, I may not have everything right, but I still need to teach anyway. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah. Um, good, good. Um, so now I wanted, I want to transition from there into the actual term uh, that you've come up with on the extent of the atonement. And it's called pananastasism. Is that, is, am I saying it right? Yep, you're saying it right, pananastasism. <laughs> so now you, cl you clearly point out that pananastasism itself, it's, it's taught historically and that the idea is drawn from and out of the patristics through the Reformation to the present date. Maybe we can draw this point out kind of before we get into the substance of this first podcast and, and just define what pananastasism is, and then we'll get into the substance of what we're going to talk about tonight. All right. Well, uh, well, it's hard to say. Let me reserve for what what pananastasism is. Pananastasism is for later because uh, that's going to be much more clear to people at that point. But essentially, it's a a different view on a universal extent of atonement, and one in which I think will be something that even a particularist could consider, someone who believes in a particular atonement might want to consider as uh, a shift in their own viewpoint uh, based off scripture. So I didn't get this idea from the patristics or from the historical study. I did the historical study after my biblical study. So it was more of a confirming factor that are there people in history that articulated their views in such a way that it, it kind of fits what I was saying, even though they didn't use this term and so forth. And we'll talk more about how I came up with that term and why I came up with that term uh, a little bit later too. Perfect. So um, now in this first podcast, um, we kind of want to establish what the goals are and, uh, and, and really what we're wanting to accomplish um, tonight. So I think here's what we're going to do. The goal of the first podcast is going to be to give the general background on what's meant by the atonement in 1 AD, and then number two, to focus, uh, 1 A through D, and then two, to focus particularly on what is uh, in this outline. So the four traditional views on the extent of the atonement all leading up to an introduction in uh, the pan-anastotic um, uh, view of the atonement, which would be the culmination of this podcast. And then, as you said earlier, we'll be discussing more of the good and bad things about the atonement views, with the key point being to at least affirm, um, but not really necessarily defend that penal substitution is the proper view of the atonement, and uh, then get to the ground rules about what's meant by the term. So um, let's see if we can nail down, I think it's important to kind of nail down what, what the where the where the exactly the atonement lies within the conversation of the gospel itself so when we're talking about the gospel the way that i see it is is you've got um the life the bear the death the burial and the resurrection of jesus christ as it's laid out in first corinthians 15 1 through 4 and and when you break it down even further the each one of those is a whole aspect in and of itself 
So to me, when we're talking about the death of Christ and uh, what happened on the cross um, and what happened up until the resurrection, I think that that, um, to me, is how I would, I, I would categorize the atonement when it comes to the gospel. Is there anything that you would add to that to kind of give a backdrop for leading into this, this conversation tonight? I think the atonement is, is focused on the death of Christ, you know, specifically and how that relates in, in the whole concept of the gospel message itself. So, yeah, and, and obviously his, his life, his incarnation is important because he had to be the sinless sacrifice. And then his resurrection is important. He has, to, he has a ministry he's carrying on high priestly ministry that he's carrying on after the fact. So there's other aspects all pivoting around that, that death that he offered himself up for. Okay. Um, great. So let's go ahead and dive into it. I'm just going to kind of follow your lead here as you go through it. And I want you to be able to present it to the audience and I'll just kind of chime in and uh, which kind of works out in, in my benefit because for whatever reason, I'm losing my voice tonight. So uh, this is this is going to be uh, you'll have to carry the weight. So, okay. Well, uh, briefly, I just want to discuss. You know, what do we mean by the word atonement? The the English term atonement comes from the Anglo-Saxon word that means to make at one with. So, that's why English uses that term uh, to define this concept. The Hebrew term that terms really, depending on what verb form it comes in, uh, Kippur and Kippur, they have the idea of appeasement. And the first usage of it being found is in Genesis 32:20, when Jacob is seeking to save his family's lives by appeasing his brother Esau. So that word is used there uh, prior to ever being used in reference to what we normally think of in Old Testament atonement. And I think that's an important clue to the understanding of the word. Now, there is a homonym form of it, uh, Kopher, in Genesis 6.14 in relation to Noah's Ark where it's talking about the tarring or pitching the ark. And there's many people that will draw parallels from that. If there is any relationship between those homonyms, and there may not be, uh, you know, the word bark in English for a dog barking and the word bark for tree bark are the same word. They're homonyms, but they're totally different. There's no relationship between those. Uh, if there's any relationship, then it may be the root idea of to cover or maybe even to smear. And in one sense, it might then mean to cover over as in cover overing an, an, an issue. So appeasing by covering over an issue. Okay. So I've got so, a couple questions on those first two points. The first, um, you, you were saying that the atonement is to make at one with. So my first question would be, is that what the atonement itself is designed to do? Is it, is it designed to make us at one with God? Um, it, so basically what, I would, what I'm asking is, is the atonement alone enough to save anyone? 
Um, maybe you could identify the error and if that's too simple of a way to put it. Um, and then two, when it comes to the, the covering, in this case, how would the arc be a picture of the atonement as a covering in relation to the atonement? Well, the depending on how you view the atonement is going to, the extent of it in part and, and the nature of it is going to determine whether you feel like the atonement of itself saves anyone. Uh, I would say from my perspective, in part, it does, but not in the totality of what we normally think of as salvation in total. It, the atonement is just a piece of God's plan in the whole salvific process. Now, as far as Noah's Ark being a picture of atonement, um, I, I think that could be stretching it a little far, but I do think that there's certainly a picture in the sense of Noah was saved within the Ark in the sense that we are also saved being in Christ. So I think that that's not necessarily so much directly atonement related, but but the concept of of salvation by being carried within uh, the ark or within Christ is something that could be paralleled there in scripture. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll interject as we go, but I, I, that answers the first two questions that I've got. So um, I'll let you keep going, man. Okay. So some related terms that we think of with atonement is redeem or redeemer. Um, that's, not the same thing as atonement. Some people would equate those, and I think it's it's improper to equate those uh, directly. There's some Greek terms that we also see in relation to specifically atonement, I would say. Heloskomai means to appease or to propitiate. We'll see that in like Hebrews chapter 2 and Luke chapter 18. It's used there. Another word is katalaso which means to reconcile. We see that in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 11 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then apokataletso, which is also means to reconcile. So basically it's a, a synonym with the katalaso. It just has the apa preposition prefixed to it. Some believe that that might have the idea of again reconciling. So we see that word in Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1. So... Um, let me, I want to, I want to ask a couple questions. I promise I won't keep interrupting. Um, oh, when we were, we're talking about the redeemer, we're talking about redemption. Um, this is something that I was looking at in, in your dissertation itself. And I, I wanted to point out, or at least get your take on this, um, on, on footnote 142, um, which there's a lot of footnotes. Uh, I've, I'd say you've probably got over a thousand footnotes throughout this thing. I don't know. But anyways, it's it's linked to a quote from Gibson. And, and you're talking about the four, uh, four moments that intimately linked to the Trinity. One being redemption and predestined through the Father's work. Two being redemption accomplished, the Son's work. Three being redemption applied, the Spirit's work. And four, redemption, redemption consummated the result of all three works. And uh, I wanted to kind of get your take on this um, when it comes to Gibson's view on the atonement regarding redemption and the redeemed. Because you were just talking about it a little bit right there. 
um, regarding the Redeemer and to redeem. So I, I wanted to ask you what your take is specifically as it relates to Gibson there. Well, the point I made in that footnote for Gibson was trying to emphasize the fact that redemption is just one aspect of salvation as well. So redemption has the idea of buying back, of paying a ransom and releasing people. We see that illustrated in various ways in the Old Testament. And that is one picture of many that the Old Testament uses to try and show the full scope of what atonement does. So there's, there's other aspects to atonement besides redemption. There's cleansing aspects. There's um, uh, just relational aspects as far as how it, it brings us into that reconciliation uh, position and so forth. So that's the main point of what I was trying to convey in that I footnote, see. I think. Um, now, you had mentioned on the Greek terms, uh, number two and number three, they're very similar to me. So I wanted to get your take there, katalasso and then apokatalasso to reconcile. Could you kind of show us what the distinction is between those two? Uh, the, there isn't a whole lot of distinction. Even the, the Greek scholars uh, pretty much say that they both mean to reconcile. It's just that they, there's, there is question as to, because there's that prepositional prefix added to it, the apa added to the front of the word, it, does it have some kind of meaning to that? And oftentimes uh, a preposition can mean something just being more intensified. And then, as I mentioned, uh, there's some scholars that think it may have the idea of again reconcile, which uh, I think in the context is why they, they make those statements in the context of where that one's used. I see. So, well, that's all I got for now. I'll let you keep going. Man. <laughs> all right. There's a couple of nouns, helasmus, uh, which means appeasement or propitiation. So it's the noun form of the verb that we just talked about. And hilasterion, which is the place of appeasing or the place of a propitiation. So those are some terms you'll see. Uh, you'll see helasmus in 1 John 2 and, and 4, and then the place of appeasement there in Romans 3 and Hebrews 9. So that kind of covers the, the Greek terms that are used in relation to atonement. And as I mentioned, Christ's atonement is complex enough that the Bible uses many pictures to build up a profile of what his atonement is about. And no, no one picture captures the, the full essence of, of what atonement is or what it's trying to, to do. And uh, perhaps maybe in a later podcast, we might go over more of those Old Testament pictures or not. But, I would uh, love to do that. I think that's, I mean, when you look at the, the Old Testament uh, types and, and you look at the New Testament, how the New Testament draws out what is in the Old Testament, um, I, I think that would be extremely valuable. It, it's, I mean, gosh, man, it, when, the way that you laid it out in the dissertation, I, I love it. I think that'd be extremely beneficial, especially to our audience. Um, and, and perhaps maybe we could mention here, uh, speaking of which, on page 320, you've got a footnote, uh, footnote 421. It says, this is what has kept universal salvation of resurrection in the shadows for ages. So I, I guess when we're considering 
the complexity of Christ's atonement, and we're considering um, the different pictures in the Old Testament, and and, and hopefully I'd, I'd love to get to that point in a later podcast. But um, when it comes to the relevance of of the atonement and how we're how we're going to look at it as we go throughout this series, um, how would you how would you look at that and say that the universal salvation of the resurrection has been actually uh, kept in the shadows for ages, or is that something that we should wait to to tackle and uh, kind of break down as we as we go a little further in here? Uh, well, uh, I think we can tackle it more later. I'll just say here for those of you um, who aren't familiar with with my view, the the panastasism is basically making an argument that the penal substitutionary atonement is what purchases the resurrection for all people. And so I think that's something that's been missed in the atonement debate for centuries, largely because people have been arguing over other things. And it it just kind of, in my mind, I think it slipped by um, people. They, they, They just assume something else about the resurrection than I think what they should be assuming. So, and I, when I'm talking about the resurrection here, I'm talking about our resurrection, the resurrection of people. I see. So, uh, okay. Well, I'll hold off there. I think that's uh, that's something that we we can come back to at some point. I think that's yeah, that'll that'll be good to break down and get to there. So, you got it. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some theological theories regarding Christ's atonement because that's partly what drove me towards trying to find a solution was the the way these theological theories interacted and with scripture and, and logic and so forth, and how each of them had positives and negatives to it. So first of all, we need to define the nature of the atonement means basically how does Christ's atonement function in doing what it's designed to do in handling sin? So the nature of the atonement is how does Christ's atonement function in, in the way that it handles sin? And then the extent of the atonement is whose sins does Christ's death substitute as a payment for and how? Is is that actual or is it potential? That's really where the debates lie, at least among those that that hold to a penal substitutionary atonement. As we noted, I'm not really going to take time to defend a penal substitutionary atonement view right now because I know that there's some people that would uh, not – want to go down that route. They don't believe in penal substitution. And I think penal substitution is, is fairly clear in scripture, but I will say that maybe by the end of this, some people that possibly uh, don't like penal substitution, maybe part of the reason you don't like it is because of the way it's been presented. Because I do think that it's been presented in not the best light in some respects. And I think my view has a better handle on what that actually means in my opinion anyway now you had just mentioned the extent of the atonement um i recently uh within i don't know probably the last eight months or so uh read david allen's book on the extent of the atonement and uh, i think he recently which that thing is amazing i mean it's it's basically an encyclopedia um (laughs) from my perspective um, of, of the historical view of the extent of the atonement. But anyway, so I, he makes it clear that the extent is available to all people, uh, but that it's limited to those who have, have it actually applied to them by faith. Um, so there's not everyone actually has the atonement applied to them. So 
I guess my question is, and maybe this is something that we need to come back to as well, but where would the distinction be actually lacking in regard to the extent of itself within that view? And should there be a distinction between the application of the atonement and the actual extent of the atonement? Uh, we're going to cover that more here in a few minutes, but I, I do think that that, what I, I would call a provisionalist view, he has a provisionalist view that Christ provided for everyone, but it's only applied to those who believe. And that's a fairly common view among people that, that hold to a universal or unlimited atonement. But I do think it, it has some issues to it that are not addressed, and we'll talk about those here in a second. Okay. So sh should there be a distinction between application of atonement with the extent of the atonement? I think it depends on your view of atonement, but I, I think if you're trying to hold to a penal substitutionary view of atonement, I don't think that you can make a distinction between those. And I we'll see. talk more about that too. Okay, great. I'm looking forward to that. And then, of course, we, we talk about the nature of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, and then there's also the intent of atonement. So what is God's plan for the results of atonement? And all three of those things get talked about in atonement debates, and sometimes I think the intent idea even gets mixed up with the extent idea. And I think David Allen in his book does a good job of isolating that particular issue as well in, in the debate. And so it's good to just keep those three things in mind that they are distinct. Now there's nine common theories. I, I would say common theories on a, the nature of atonement. So I'm not going to take the time to go through these. I, I think each of them has certain aspects that show some scriptural truth, but they tend to have a lot of issues. So we got, you know, things like the ransom to Satan theory, the recapitulation theory, the dramatic theory, or, I call it Christus Victor theory, the mystical theory, the example theory, moral influence theory, the commercial theory, the governmental theory, and then the penal substitutionary theory. And as I stated, um, I think penal substitution is is a, a right view. Uh, I think at the very least, you need to have that included within your atonement scheme. But uh, we're not going to really defend that here so much, but... Yeah. Now, I, d I have, I, I know that we're not going to defend it, but I, I do want to ask this question because um, a friend of mine on Twitter, Ron, if you're watching, I love you, man. Um, a friend of mine on Twitter uh, has said that the, the penal substitution model is, is absolute outright heresy. So I know that we're not going to break it down and defend it a whole lot, but I would like to just get your take on that. Uh, if you could give a real brief explanation, why or why is it is the penal substitution model um, not a, hered a heretical view. Well, I don't think it's heretical because I think it's, to me, it's fairly clear from Scripture that uh, the in the Old Testament, the animals died as in place of God's wrath coming upon people themselves. Uh, there was a substitution aspect there, especially you see it in the Passover lamb uh, situation picture there, then the fact that Christ died and how that relates to what it is. So that death, to me, as you're going to see in my view, that death is the penalty. Um, so I, I don't think penal substitution is heresy, definitely. 
again, it may be the articulation of the view that he doesn't like. So perhaps he might prefer the way I articulate it. I don't know. I see. We'll see. All right. Well, I appreciate maybe, your maybe. take on that. So, yeah. <laughs> maybe you'll hear from him one way or the other. I might. We'll see. Yep. He's, <laughs> he's, he usually watches our videos. So Now, so there are various penal substitutionary views on the extent of the atonement, and that's what I'm going to kind of run through here. But So we needed to define penal substitution. Penal deals with punishment for violation of law and has no direct connection with personal relationships. So a police officer could arrest his son for theft and put him in prison. That's a penal consequence, the imprisonment. Whatever feelings the officer has towards the son about the infraction is in some sense irrelevant. He, he may love him. He may have great anger towards him. That's a separate issue from the actual penalty, the, the legal consequence there. Then substitution demands an actual and holistic effect. Uh, that's one of the problems I have with the provisionalist, as, as we'll see here in a few minutes. But when you substitute, you swap something fully for something at the time that the swap is transacted in its finality, so to speak. So if that, tra if that swap doesn't occur, if the substitution doesn't occur, then there really was not a substitute. And I think this is where the commercial idea in atonement is important as part of the penal substitution view. And that, that really that's the precise point of substitution. One thing substitutes for, or is it in exchange for another thing? And this is the point of the ransom payment and the point of any payment to redeem something that's, that's talked about in scripture. Regarding now, the nature, go ahead. No, I, okay. I wanted to ask one question. That, um, so when I when I hear things like uh, uh, transactions, and, and I and, and then you hear about the substitute and fully paid for and those kinds of words, to me those things they stand out in my mind. Um, and it, it, I think of John Owen with with the commercial payment theory, and uh, and and I think of just others that would be more of a particular camp view. And, and we're talking about problems with maybe problems with um, the the transaction view within the provisionalist camp, whether something is actually substituted for or something is actually paid for. But um, I, I wanted to get your your take on that is is I, I know that we're just going to scratch the service here, but as kind of a teaser, could you tell us a little bit about why you would agree with Owen on the transaction payment side of of things? And uh, um, as, as a contrast to kind of Alan's view that that there's it, it's a provision and application and kind of a limiting factor there, if you would. Yeah, well, I think it it does boil down to the nature of the substitution. Now, I I agree wholeheartedly with with John Owen on this in the sense of something has to be transaction, some actual transaction. He gets a little. He goes a little too far out, I think, in you know counting every drop of blood, uh, every little whatever scratch and so forth, all counts as part of the cost paid in the transaction. I, I don't think it's quite so minutia in its detail, but the point I'm gonna argue for is is basically a death for death type 
situation. Uh, that kind of a transaction is what my uh, theory is arguing for, that Christ's death pays for our death so that we don't remain in death. Uh, I see. It's the essence of it. Now, that makes sense to me, and honestly, um, this is where it really, really gets to the heart of the issue with me, because I could see both sides of it. I'm like, gosh, man, it's got to be an actual substitute. There's got to be, there's some sort of transaction here, if you want to call it a transaction, when, when it comes to the payment aspect of the conversation. Um, and, and then I'm looking at the provisionalist side, and I'm going, well, if I've got these two options, the provi the provisionalist option seems like the most logical to me. So um, I won't give anything away, but that that really um, that really had a big impact on me and hearing what a solution is to kind of reconcile the two views together. So um, I'll, I'll let you keep going, man. Sure. So regarding the extent of the atonement, there's, I would say, traditionally, and I use that term somewhat loosely, but traditionally four positions people have taken on it, which I label in order to help avoid the theological baggage of other names, I label them as particularist, provisionalist, partialist, and plenarist in order to focus the names on various and distinct answers to the question of extent. Now, some of you are going to know these names more by a particularist. You're going to think of more like a five-point Calvinist or a provisionalist might be a four-point Calvinist or a partialist might be uh, an Arminian or a plenarist might be a universalist. So like I said, I, I didn't use those more common names there because I didn't want all the other baggage that comes with those particular views to uh, cloud the point of the extent of the atonement. And so these labels that I have are designed to isolate the, the viewpoint on the extent of the atonement and how the nature of the atonement functions in that. So whose sins does Christ's death substitute as a payment for and how actual or potential is kind of, as we noted, the, the issue. And so our first group, the particularist, he would answer that question, whose sins? He would say a particular subset of humanity. How? He would say an actual substitutionary payment for the sins, making certain that salvation comes to that subset. And that subset, of course, being believers slash the elect, depending on how in context that it may be referred to. So particularists, they emphasize the intent passages. So they'll go to the passages where Christ died for his people in Matthew chapter 1 and his sheep in John chapter 10 and his friends in John chapter 15, the church in Acts 20, the bride in, in Ephesians chapter 5. This often by the opposition group, like the provisionalists, is set up, though, as showing that it's a negative inference fallacy. So the point is that just because a subset of a larger group is emphasized within a context doesn't mean that it doesn't, I, it doesn't get rid of the fact that there might be a larger group in picture. So the, usually the most common counterpoint is Galatians 2.20, where it says, where Paul makes a statement that Christ died for me. Well, obviously he's not, by making that statement, he died for me as a intense statement. 
of God doesn't mean that God didn't also intend to save everyone else. And so even though it's an extreme example, the same logic holds for all those other passages. And so this, this is a, a problem in one sense of focusing on those intent passages that it could be that it, there's other contexts as we tend to argue, those of us who believe in a universal atonement, that there's also places where it talks about Christ dying for all people. So there's no reason to limit the all based off those other passages is the point. And I think that that's a, a, a weakness in the particularist view. Now, let me stop you there just for a second. Now, for those particularists who are listening, um, and, and we just, we listed, hey, uh, you know, what what a particularist would believe and then listed, hey, there's, there's here's the problem with the particularist view. This doesn't mean necessary. This doesn't mean that you need to stop listening now that we've listed the problem and just don't get offended. Just take it with a grain of salt. We're going to try to draw it all together and uh, we're going to go through each one of those groups. So I think the next one you, I, I think we're going to, we'll just keep going here. I don't want to throw yeah. that in there. You don't have to stop watching <laughs> if you're a particularist just because, yeah, so. Yeah, my point is that just because there's these statements about particular groups that, that are intended in, for the atonement to work for doesn't mean that there's not also at least the possibility that it extends to a broader group as well in some kind of effect. Uh, that's the only, that's the main point there. I see. Now, particularists also argue that Christ uh, only died for those that were given to him. So like John 6, 37 through 40, um, and then, like James White argues from Romans chapter 8, uh, 31 and following. So they talk about the fact that it's only those people that Christ intercedes for distinctly from the world in John 17, 9. The problem, as I see it with this particular track, too, is that the John 6 passage, in one sense, is not even an atonement or payment context. So... One cannot really argue from that without circularly presupposing a particular atonement. Uh, the payment is is limited in, in their view. And so I see John chapter 6 as more of a, a participation text. One must partake of the bread of life, i.e. believe in Christ. Romans 8, 31 has the same kind of issues uh, as just discussed, that even if a subset is mentioned there, that doesn't mean that the subset is the only ones that God has delivered uh, Christ up for. So I think David Allen is correct in his point in asserting that there's no texts that limit the payment aspect of the atonement. Now, as to intercession, even within the John 17 passage, there is the, the passage later on, 17, 20 through 21, where Christ does pray specifically for the world. So there's some kind of intercession for the world that happens there. Uh, so that's kind of some issues I have with that particular take from a particular perspective. So here, here's what we're going to need you to do. You just mentioned John 6 and Romans 8, Romans 9. Um, I, I think what we're going to need as fast as you can, just a real brief rundown, John 6, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Romans 9, 
um, just exegete each one of those texts for us, that would be great if you could. Oh, yeah, sure. Just off the top of my head in less than a minute. Uh. <laughs> but no, I mean, honestly, I'd like to, I, I would like to hear your take on it. I don't know if we'll ever get a chance to do that, but um, maybe those of you who are viewing live and you, if you're interested, we can pressure Scott into doing that for us someday. So. Yeah, and maybe maybe one of the future of these podcasts, I don't know. Those neither of those passages are ones that I would go to to begin with to to argue my point. Yeah. But uh they're definitely would need to be discussed at some point. Now, something I think that again, and I've already kind of alluded to this with my uh agreement with John Owen on this point, I, I think particularists are correct in when they maintain that logically, if Christ substituted for all, each and every person, that all should be saved, since substitution is inherently effectual. So this is an area where, it, when when I was wrestling with the ideas of atonement, the particularists, I thought, they have that right. That if you're going to have a substitute, it has to be effectual. And so the answers to them to me, were lacking. So this is part of this logical aspect is included in my view of atonement. And I think it's a positive contribution to the uh, atonement discussion. And so this is where I would disagree with David Allen, who thinks that there's no commercial aspect of atonement and kind of rejects those ideas. And I think that that really misses out on what substitution is. See, and this is where it, it kind of became problematic for me um, in, in really breaking down and identifying, well, is there an actual payment? Is there substitution? What's the effectiveness of this substitution re in regard to the extent of the atonement? And, and I know we had spoke about Owen earlier, and uh, part of the problem with Owen's view is, is that he, was, he got so specific that he assigned a value to each drop of blood. And and he was even he was even refuted by other Calvinists by uh, guys like uh, I think it was Dabney uh, and Dabney and I can't I think those are the two guys who were the main two um, who refuted that view um, in regard to the value of each drop of blood and those things. But I I, I think that we've got to make it real clear that it is we would break this down. We're going to go along in the series that especially for the particularist that this is absolutely going to be a point of uh, consideration, maybe a point of um, conflict for you. Um, for those of you who are a particularist or a Calvinist that you're viewing this, um, this is going to be something that is really where you're going to be challenged um, when it comes to uh, the effectiveness of the atonement and who it's applied to. How, who does it actually affect? So just keep that in the back of your mind. If you, if you, When we go through this, and you've got questions, please write into us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever it is that you're watching on. You can even leave a voicemail. Um, please leave your voicemail. Go to the uh, podcast app, go in the description, and leave a voicemail. We would love those. We'll play those in the next episode um, if you're a Calvinist. And even if we get to the provisionalist side and you've got a question or you have something that you want uh, explained a little more, Leave a voicemail, write to us, however it is that you're more comfortable, and we'll make sure that at the end of the episode, um, we'll try to get to those those questions. So, anyways, I don't mean to interject again there, Scott. I'll turn it back to you, man. No I keep problem. saying man, so I'm, I've got to stop saying <laughs> that. But, yeah. 
So particularists also, one other thing with them is they, they emphasize a lot the final results as in one sense, supposedly proving the extent as particular, uh, generally because of the previous point about substitution. Uh, so that is, since only a subset of humanity is ultimately saved, well, unless you're a, you know, a universalist, which I, I don't agree with, but since there's only a subset saved, the believers slash elect, that the atonement's substitutionary extent, they believe, must only extend to that group. So they see it as a either or, either it's this limited atonement or you end up in universalism is how they would frame the argument. And I think the problem with that framing it that way is it fails to at least consider that more than just the atonement is related to ultimate salvation. And so even though atonement plays a key part in salvation, it's not the totality of salvation. And so to just look to that ultimate salvation aspect of who ultimately gets saved and make that a case of argument for the atonement, I think misses part of the point of the subtleties of what all is transpiring within the atonement transaction and the salvation experience of what all has to happen. So in other words, faith and other things that need to come into play in ultimate salvation. So to summarize the particularist, uh, I see a positive in the fact that it affirms substitution must be effectual. That's something that I've keyed in on in, in my theory and will utilize it within my theory because I think it's correct. I, I think you have a hard time arguing substitution otherwise. And then the problems are, for me, the theological presupposition of the conclusion. So Basically, the fact that they hold to a particular atonement to begin with, in one sense, forces an eisegesis of the universal readings of Scripture. So they have to make all those passages that we universalists would point to that seem to be clearly stating a universal statement, they have to make those somehow not refer to a universal statement in order to support their view. But the only reason that they're having to do that is because they are committed to a particular atonement. So they're kind of forced, they cannot allow those passages in in their present state of mind to be read as universal to fit into their scheme. So they're forced then to find a not so obvious way of reading them. And, And so I think that's a major weakness that every universalist and unlimited atonement person has obviously argued for is all those universal passages. And, and I'm sure uh, that the particular, it, everyone would get, it, 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 at some point that's going to come up in the conversation. You know, what do you do with the alls, the the whole world, the everyone's, the whosoever's? And and those are typically the types of conversations that would come up there. Um, yeah. And that's, that, was, that was problematic for me when I was considering, like, is limited atonement a legit thing? And to me, that just, uh, that... Um, Anyways, so. Yeah, and I think that, I think if a particularist is willing to consider my view, I think they'll find that that a lot of the rest of what they believe could be fit into the scheme that I have, and yet it will allow them to open up and see those passages as being universal in a way that they weren't 
able to previously. And we'll talk more about that. Yeah. And I'm looking forward too, to getting but... there. So I'm really, and for those of you guys who I talk to online that are, uh, that hold to that view, I, I'm really looking forward to it, having that conversation with you and getting your take on that and how, how, if there's problems, how we can work those out and uh, just kind of test this thing and see if it works or not. But anyways. So now we're going to move on to the provisional list. So provisionalist we've, we've kind of already defined it somewhat it's they they believe that tome has been provided for everyone but it's only applicable or effective to believers so that's the idea there so whose sins do they believe the atonement covers they would say all humanity how well an actual payment for sins is made so there's been an exchange has been made for sins they would argue uh, but that payment is provisional. So in one sense, it, it is kind of like uh, a deposit that's yet to be applied, essentially. I mean, that's how you got to look at it, because they'll say that it's been paid for, but it hasn't been applied yet because it only gets applied to believers. So it doesn't become actual or effectual in an exchange for the person themselves until faith. And that's kind of where we're at with with that. Now, so provisionalists uh, argue that clearly, and really only the particularists try to argue otherwise, that the universal passages are referring to all humanity. So 1 Timothy 4.10, 1 John 2.2, 2, 2 Peter 2.1, etc. Uh, provisionalists argue that those are universal texts. And I, I agree. I think that's correct. The right way to read those. It seems to be forcing the issue to try and read them otherwise. And so we've already kind of talked about that. But provisionalists also argue logically that Christ providing for all allows for some true good news, i.e. the gospel, to be proclaimed to all people, to every creature, so to speak, as Mark uh, 16, 15 and Colossians 1, 23 notes. So to the unbelievers, in order that they might believe the gospel can be preached, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for them, John 3.16. So the provisionalists really try to also, from their point of view, uh, attack the, the particulars about this point. And I think that that's a positive contribution to the atonement and the extent discussion. Because from my perspective, it's hard to see how the particularists have any good news at all for those not ultimately saved because in their view Christ did nothing salvific for them uh, that's just the that's way sad. it is yeah I'm yeah it is it it's 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 sad I think um, but that I won't say much more I just um, it you know you you really ask the question like does God really love the whole world and ask questions like that and that's where that's where it became very problematic for me to kind of buy into that, but I'll, I'll let you keep going. <laughs> now, provisionalists either argue in logical contradiction to their view that an actual penal substitution for all people, that is that Christ died in the place of all, or they argue for substitution in exchange of sins, not in exchange of people. So... I see both those 
views as an issue, as a problem in this scheme. So if Christ is the ransom paid for all humanity, then it is people he is making an exchange payment for. And so, in a, again, in agreement with particularists, it is illogical to make the payment merely provisional without an actual effect. And here's where the provisionalists are forced to reject the commercial ideas of atonement because their theological position cannot have an actual exchange occurring. It's, it's the theological position itself that they're trying to maintain that moves uh, both particularists to reject the universal readings and the provisionalists to reject the clearly commercial text readings. Now, if the exchange is not personal, if it's not for persons, but rather just for sins, uh, then it doesn't match to the passages that, ex- that talk about an exchange for persons, like Matthew 20, 28 and Mark 10, 45 and 1 Corinthians 6, 20 and 7, 23 and some others. So those passages that mention dying for sins, which is where we get part of our whole idea of a penal substitution, does not mean an exchange for sins, but rather because of sins. It is Christ died in exchange for and in place of people because of their sins. So I hope that I've, makes sense. It, it does, um, but I, I think that for those of you who are viewing um, and, and you're really questioning that, you might say, and a typical argument would be that is universal salvation. If everyone's sins are paid for, they're substituted for. I I can see people right now, Scott, they're yelling at their device like, you're a universalist. I don't know how you don't see it. Like, (laughs) you're supporting universalism. So, uh, can you give kind of an appeal to those of you who are are questioning right now? Josh, have you become a universalist? Like, no, I haven't. So, Scott, can you kind of um, give an explanation for that? Well, well, I'm not a universalist either. So, you're going to see that but I do believe there's a universal aspect to the salvation. So that's, that's what we're getting to. Okay. So the positive of provisionalists is they affirm the universal readings and they, to me, they have some kind of a real good news to be proclaimed to others. Problem is their theological presuppositions of the conclusion that is a provisional atonement forces their eisegesis of the basically making commercial readings of the text, non-commercial, because they cannot allow those passages to, to do so. So it forces them into that to avoid some of that inherent aspect of what substitution entails. So the third group now is the partialist. So again, the partialist tends to see whose sins did Christ die for? All humanity. How? As an actual payment for sins, that results in some partial effect on unbelievers. Usually this is in the sense of making them savable, uh, allowing them an ability to believe is probably the most common idea, but it's not fully effectual until faith. So could you, so um, could you take, just kind of show us how that would be a little kind of distinct from the provisionalist view. Yeah. So the, I mean, partialists like the provisionalists, they, they share in the argument about the clearly universal passages uh, that are referring to all humanity. So they, they would agree on that. They would agree on the good news. So really, the, 
the provisionalists and the partialists are, are in the same camp regarding the universal texts, readings, and the good news concept of the gospel. So we won't rehash those aspects of it. Okay. But where the distinction is, is whereas the provisionalist had it, had everything provided, but yet to be applied till faith, the partialist is trying to, to do something with that substitution aspect and say, well, there's got to be some kind of actual effect here that Christ has done. And so for them, the actual effect they're saying is, is this focus on universal grace passages. So the idea of prevenient grace being the effect of atonement. You know, Romans 2, 4, goodness of God leads you, who you being you who despise God's riches, to repentance. Uh, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And uh, and perhaps most particularly with atonement, John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in conjunction with John 12.32, where they it's, it says, and I, being Christ, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, it's correct to try and figure out some type of actual effect on people. I think that's part of what I was saying in my agreement with the particularists about substitution needs to have an effect. But I think it's a problem if you try and make prevenient grace that effect because it's it ends up still not being a whole effect. So whatever, whatever the substitution is doing, it has to be a total effect an equal type effect, so to speak, among all people. And so, and, and it has to be something that's fully effectual, that makes sense. I so I, I don't see that pur- purchasing the ability to believe, so to speak. And I, and I don't really see in scripture where it ever makes that connection between uh, these things. So, Man's sinful spiritual condition is, in their view, in one sense, not really the penalty for sin, but rather um, it's the spiritual darkness, or so to speak, that, that they're trying to handle through the atonement. And I think that that's a wrong direction to go with it. So the partialist... They affirm the universal readings. I think that's good. They affirm the idea, same kind of stuff with the provisionalists about the gospel. But I just think that the actual effect of penal substitution is not really wholly effectual for all, especially in a penal aspect. And that's where their problem lies. It seems like to me, uh, you've still got a limiting factor with all three of the, the, the views that we've talked about so far. I mean, and the one that you may you may scratch your head as a provisionalist and say, well, no, we don't limit the atonement. To in, in my own mind, I I I work it out and say, well, if it's not applied, then it's it's not actually a substitution for. If it's not applied, then it's not effectual. So to me, I look at it that way. That would be uh, limiting to me. Um, but when when we talk about um, the extent of the atonement, it seems like all three of the groups here. Um, would not necessarily actually have an effective uh, atonement for the whole world. I, am I kind of reading into that right there? Uh, yes, I think so. 
I, okay. I think that's fair to say that. I mean, the partialist would come the closest to having an effect for the whole world, but I just don't think it's focused on what atonement's dealing with specifically the penalty for sin. I see. So okay. that's one of their issues there. So the fourth view I've labeled plenarist, uh, whose sins are they thinking it covers? They say all humanity, how they, they're the flip side of the particularist. They would try and argue that an actual substitutionary payment for all people is going to result in the guaranteed salvation of all people. So it, this is where your universalists reside. And there's differing ways to deal with universal atonement. So uh, this is just one view that is the logical opposite of particularists. They, they would see it as actual and effectual. Um, they have the same positive points as provisionalists and partialists. They, they have... A, they read the universal passages as universal. They have a, a good news for people in that sense. But uh, their problem, of course, is you just cannot sustain, I think, at all that there's any kind of idea of universal salvation. There's just too many passages that clearly demonstrate yeah. that not all people are ultimately saved. Uh, specifically, some get cast into the lake of fire. They have no part with the rest. So now you couldn't, you can't get your ideas confused here. An annihilationist, there's those that are annihilationists that believe that in hell, people are cast into hell, but they're ultimately annihilated. They are not technically universalists yeah. because they don't say that everyone's saved. So I'm talking here about ones that would be true universalists that trying to argue that everybody ultimately ends up in a safe state and, and nobody ends up in hell forever, yeah. or or annihilated or anything. Which, by the way, uh, that view is uh, it's becoming more prominent. Uh, the 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 total annihilation view, and uh, yeah, I'm I've been I've been looking into that a little bit more lately, and um, there's there's it's an interesting it's an interesting kind of thought process. Um, but I think that. I think that the view of your of the atonement and what what it actually accomplishes is is going to have an impact on on what happens in eternity with uh, regard to death um, and annihilation and whether it's eternal conscious torment or whether it's annihilation. But that's a whole nother topic. I mean, it, there's just so many subtopics when it comes to this conversation. So a lot of rabbit trails yeah. that we can go down and potential to go down, but. Um, I, I really appreciate the consistency of what would lead to this view because obviously we're saying the plenarist has um, a view that there's a universal effective salvation for literally the whole world and no one ends up going to hell or everyone ends up eventually um, making it into heaven. But I, I think that's where we're going to see the distinction as we draw, uh, draw into um, really. Yeah, and I think... Yeah. Two at the end of this uh, for tonight, uh, we're actually going to see somewhat how how my view of atonement ties into the eternal state and the the aspects of hell and and the lake of fire and so forth. And and in some ways, uh, I, for me, it answered some of the reason of why uh, it, 
it's going to be the way it, I believe scripture's stating it's going to be. So, which we're going to get in. So let me just summarize for the plenarists, the positives, they affirm the universal readings. They also have a good news statement for, for the whole world. Uh, it obviously resolves the actual effectual partial whole conundrums that provisionalists and partialists views, I think, have. But then in doing so, they, they introduce the problem of ultimate salvation of all people that's just not sustainable, I think, in other passages of Scripture and Revelation. So the fifth view, which is the view that I'm advancing here that my dissertation was all about, is, as I, again, I labeled it, uh, it's the Pananastasist view or Pananastasism. And I am arguing for this as a, a more biblical and correct understanding that takes the positives of all these positions while avoiding the problems of those positions. So Christ must be a true substitute for each and every person. And so this would be in solidarity with uh, the particularist and the plenarist, but kind of in some sense against the provisionalist and partialist. The substitution must wholly affect what it intends so that's also in solidarity with the particularist and the plenarist and against the provisionalist and partialist. The effect must be salvific from the penalty. And this is really in solidarity with, with all, uh, though I guess somewhat against the partialist misunderstanding that we talked about. And then the effect alone must not result in ultimate salvation of all people. So the effect that I'm, arguing is is that atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, is not the totality of what is salvation. And that would be in solidarity with everybody except the plenarists who believe that it is for all people. So everybody else believes that there is some subset of people that are ultimately saved in the end. And so the solution to merging all these points is, I think, the universal resurrection. And that's why I coined the term pananastasism because pan is the transliteration of the Greek word for all and anastasis is the transliteration of the Greek word for resurrection and then you throw on an ism there for the English suffix to denote you know a teaching or a system philosophy theory idea so the coined term means essentially all resurrected system or theory of viewing the atonement and so I'm going to kind of just walk through the details uh, briefly here or quickly of how I view as a what, what I would say a pananastasist answers the questions that we were just talking about. And then in the next podcast, we'll get more into the act, some actual scripture exegesis and things as to defending the point biblically more. So for those so of who, you, I'm, I'm interrupting you here real quick. For those of you guys who are right. viewing, um, this is this is really where it kind of hits hits the ground and you can hit the ground running because we're, we're breaking down and Scott's going to break down um, what this view is and, and what the differentiation is. But um, I know that I know that you guys are looking forward to getting into the scripture stuff and dissecting it and going, does this work? Does it work? Where's it wrong? Where's it wrong? Um, we'll, we'll get there. Stay with us. Stay stay patient. We're going to get there. And uh, we want to have dialogue with you as as we run through this thing together. But um, I've got to tell you, this this thing um, really kind of draws uh, the missing pieces together when you consider the previous four um, 
views of the atonement and what it accomplishes. For me, this draws it together. Uh, and let's 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 challenge each other on this thing and uh, and just ask questions and see if we can um, kind of dialogue a little bit. So anyway, Scott, I'll turn it back to you. Okay, so Panastasism would answer who sins. It would say all humanity. Uh, how? That's where it becomes distinct is in the how. So corporately, universally, God made an actual payment of physical death. This was physical death, I argue, was God's legal penalty for sin back in Genesis 2.17. And we'll talk more about that in the next podcast, too. So by his son, God made this payment, Jesus Christ, whose death was a substitute to appease God's legal issues with humanity. So God's the one that laid down the law. He couldn't go against his word, and he needed to resolve, so to speak, his own word in order to remain righteous. So God's legal issues he had with humanity, with sin, was going to bring death. And the corporate part of the atonement, the universal aspect of the atonement, legally reconciles all humanity. So that's where we get into like 2 Corinthians 5.19 and Colossians 1.20, Romans 11.15. We all deserve an eternal physical death. When, when we die, we should not be resurrected. That is, death was our payment for the sin. But because of Christ's substitutionary payment, that ultimate results in God's righteous resurrection of all people. And really, it was those passages in like John 5, 28 and 29 that talked about the resurrection uh, of the righteous and of those under condemnation. And in Acts 24, 15, where it talks the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Those passages were the ones that when I was reading one day, just clicked and said, why is anyone getting resurrected at all if death is the penalty for sin? And that's when it's just at that moment it flooded into me. That's the solution. That's the universal part of what the atonement is doing. So God is through Christ redeeming all people out of that legal penalty of death. And this in and of itself is a holy salvific effect in and of itself. It takes care of the legal side of the matters. And so one key verse I go to is that 1 Timothy 4.10 passage where it says that he's the savior of all men, but especially of those that believe. And in this case, the savior of all men part is that he's the penal substitution and the, his penal substitutionary aspect of atonement is only that first part of that statement, I think. Penal substitution does not handle the other primary issues of sin, which are the fact that we are sinful by nature. It's penetrated into our nature, our sinfulness. And we have this relational rift with God, the enmity toward God. We, we hate God, and God has wrath towards us. So those are aspects that need to be particularly saved from. And that's the other half of the 1 Timothy 4.10. So that especially those who believe 
are saved because they are saved from their sinfulness and from God's wrath. And it's belief, of course, faith, that becomes the pivot point of whom God has uh, elected as this particular subset of people to distinguish them from that whole corporate group of humanity who Christ died for. So repentance, faith, regeneration, these ideas must come about in, in, in individuals. That's clear from scripture. And it's those things that then do that, give us that special salvation, the, the especially saved aspect. And as I noted before, here's where I think one could hold either a monergism or synergism view on the logical relation of belief and regeneration and how election works and stuff, and still, I think, hold a pananastastic view of atonement, still allow for his penal substitution to effect the resurrection. So let me. No matter how you. Okay. Let, let me draw on that just a little bit. Um, for the if if you guys watched our debate uh, with me and uh, Pastor Terry Basham um, on the limited atonement, we came to at one point we came to a verse in our cross examination, um, which was Second Peter two one, and uh, this is this is the the verse that Scott called me out on and said, hey, you know, one you you didn't you were. You didn't really draw out your view the way that you should have. It was lacking, um, and there were some things that we could have done. I could have done better there, and uh, and and I asked him, well, what what was that? What could I have done better? But when we're talking about um, the pananastastic view, um, as as related to um, uh, the particularist or even the provisionalist, I was I was taking the provisionalist side that that the atonement is extended to everybody, but it's only applied to those. Who have faith. So then, you know, Terry would hold the view that no, uh, the extent of the atonement is the same as the intent of the atonement. It's only applied to those who God intended to save. Um, so um, I would ask you, like, how does this view um, reconcile the two views together? And where did I go wrong um, uh, when I was presenting 2 Peter 2 1? Well, the reason I thought you could have done better, of course, I'm approaching it from from my atonement viewpoint when I was making that statement too. But uh, one thing you could have done, even from your viewpoint, you were originally defending the provisionalist viewpoint is I remember Terry Basham had said that that passage was talking about the uh, false prophets in the Old Testament. And he was trying to make the argument that it related to Israel coming out of Egypt, that they were bought out of Egypt and that that was the the buying of them that was being discussed. But I think one key point missed in that is it moves immediately from talking about the false prophets to false teachers who are going to be coming among the Christians and that they are the ones who Christ has bought based in the passage. So it is not an Old Testament statement about the prophets of old. It's actually a New Testament statement about the false teachers that are going to be coming into the church. And Yes, there is a different word there used for the word Lord, despotes. And I think in one sense, that's because they are not under his lordship in the same sense that believers are. He is more like, God is more like a despot to those that are unbelieving. He, his wrath is upon them. He's, he's not 
in the same kind of lording relationship that the curios is to the, to those who believe. And, and so in my view, it's very much for sure Christ did pay for those false prophets and those false teachers. And the reason through that payment, that's the reason that they're going to be resurrected, just like the reason we're going to be resurrected. It is, is actual effectual aspect of his universal atonement for them. So that's kind of how I would approach that passage. Well, and when you explained that to me, I was like, wow, like, hey, Scott, what do I call myself? What's this view that, you, that you've adopted? Because it makes more sense than, than my view. So I appreciate that. And hopefully, hey, you know what? It's questions like that um, that I think need to be asked. And uh, there's answers that need to be given for questions like that. So, um, yep, I did. I missed it. I missed even from the provisionalist view. I, I, met, I was focusing on the, the first aspect of that, you know, the Old Testament um, false prophets. And then, you know, you missed where Peter was drawing it together. There's there's false teachers even among you. So, yep, I missed it. So thanks for calling me out. <laughs> so I mentioned that, you know, there's these other aspects. So we have the fact that we have our physical death that needs to be dealt with. We, none of us would be saved if we remained in death forever. Uh, that that's, would be a really weak kind of salvation. So that that is definitely part of our salvation, and, and that's an aspect that God's going to wholly take care of for people. But there is still those other aspects of being sinful and being in a wrong relationship with God. And so in the, in the panamastastic view of atonement, even though the term I've picked focuses on that universal aspect of, of the fact that it pays for everyone's resurrection— the, the theories developed further, uh, even further since when I did my dissertation, I've been thinking a little bit more about the, the second aspect, the more particular aspect in the relation to the atonement. So being sinful needs to be corrected for the believer, and it's done so, of course, by the regeneration that accompanies belief. Uh, one's human spirit becomes the new man, the new person in them, and the new man is still residing, though, in that sinful flesh until the resurrection and must choose to walk after the Spirit. So it's part of our choice here on this, in the here and now as believers, to try and choose to walk in the Spirit. And because sinfulness is still present with us, there's this cleansing aspect of sinfulness that's needed. All of this is tied into the application of Christ's blood. So... In the Old Testament pictures, there's a lot of points where atonement is made through applying of blood, usually to the altar, sometimes directly to people, and so forth. So there's a difference between the slaying of the animal and then the application of blood aspect afterwards, I'm, I'm saying, and at least especially in picturing what Christ's atonement is doing. So the penal substitution is not, not, is not what is involved with the cleansing aspect. Rather, it's the blood application that's involved with the cleansing aspect. And God has chosen only believers to be to have that blood applied, 1 Peter 1, 2 uh, mentions. So this blood application allows the person's regenerated spiritual side to be kept pure despite the sinfulness that's still in our flesh that Paul talks about. And 
the fact that that spirit's still joined to the sinful flesh is an issue. Sinfulness ultimately is going to need to be fully purged, and it will be when the resurrection occurs. So our new resurrected body, for those of us that are believers and have a washed spirit, is going to remain sinless because the the new spirit isn't going to infect it with sin. And then being resurrected, it joins with that regenerated spirit and it completes God's renewal of the person to, to not be sinful anymore, to be like him, to be righteous. So the blood application also makes the, it takes that corporate redemption from death that everyone has and it, has the believers then partake of that in a new way through a, a redemption to God. So we are redeemed from death. We're saved from death. Everyone is. But of that group, the believers are then also redeemed to God because we join into the relationship with him. We, we become put into Christ and the covenant covers us, the blood of the covenant. So it's all blood related in that sense too, as far as the covenant goes. And so the blood application is what sanctifies us to God and covenants us with God. All of these aspects, the cleansing from sin, the redeeming to God, the sanctifying to God, the covenanting us to God, all form their basis upon Christ's blood application by which God then can justify us. He, he's cleanses and everything. So he has, he, he's, he's set everything up such that we will be made righteous ultimately at the resurrection. And so at this moment in time, God now currently accounts us righteous because of our faith. And he can do so righteously because of all this work that he's done uh, for believers in cleansing them and stuff. And this justification is important because it's really our justification, our standing in a right relationship in God's sight, that's what appeases God's wrath. His wrath is only appeased by meeting his demands of humans having that positive, perfect righteousness. It's, it's not appeased by paying the penalty of death. So, Substitutionary penal substitution is not about appeasing God's wrath. And I think that's where a lot of people dislike the whole idea of penal substitution. And I think an area where penal substitution is wrong because wrath is not the penalty. Wrath is a relational thing. Death okay. is the penalty. That's a good distinction to draw there. Yeah, I've I don't know that I've ever considered it that way. Yeah, I think well, I think that's scripturally a better way to state it. Uh, I, I don't believe the, uh, there's no scripture that actually says God's wrath was poured out on Christ. And yet you'll talk about people who phrase it that way and state it that way. Instead, God was pleased with his son for willingly going to the cross, doing all these things that God wanted him to do that needed to be done. So, the, there is no statement in Scripture, I think, that, that points to God putting wrath on Christ. He puts his sins on Christ, and mm -hmm. 
that's and he make Christ pays that penalty of of death, but the wrathfulness of God is still only reserved for those who are unrighteous in his eyes. And Christ was not unrighteous in his eyes for taking on sin. God did um, forsake him on the cross. Christ says, you know, why yeah. hast thou forsaken me? But I, I don't, that even forsaking is not a wrathful statement. That's a, a pulling away type statement. Wrath is an in-your-face kind of uh, relationship. You know, God is a consuming fire. His wrath is not a pulling away. It's a in-your-face type thing. Anyway, so that was kind of a diversion. But uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, I think it's an important diversion. So this relational repair that, that's going on is that subjective reconciling of an individual towards God. So in that 2 Corinthians 5 passage, there's two reconciliations to talk about. There's the fact that God was reconciled to the mm -hmm. world in Christ, and that, I think, is the penal substitutionary atonement, reconciling the legal aspects. But then there's the call that people need to be reconciled to God. That's the relational aspect. They, they, the legal side's been taken care of, but you, we still need to come to God in faith to have that relational reconciliation occur. And so I think that's a good distinction of why there's those two reconciliations talked about in Second Corinthians. There, with this relational repairing, um, we're baptized, we identify with Christ. So then we are with Christ and we are in Christ. There's passages that talk about that, of course. And so there's this relational position change that occurs with believers that unbelievers don't have. And the one who's done this conversion has, you know, by definition, replaced their enmity toward God with quite the opposite, this hopeful looking to God for, in part, the resurrection that finalizes the adoption into their family as heirs. Romans 8, 23 and Galatians 4, 5, and some other passages talk about that. But uh, the redemption of the body is is kind of the final point of when everything comes together at the resurrection and we have the glory that we're going to have with Christ for eternity. So penal substitutionary atonement does not play a direct role in this aspect of the salvific solution. This is this these aspects are that those parts that are especially for believers. Penal substitution is the part that is for all people. And instead, it plays kind of an indirect role. Penal substitution plays an indirect role as it is a factual basis upon which people ought to believe in God as their savior because he is corporately going to save them from the penalty of sin, which is physical death. So he's already done something for them, actual. He's, he's made that payment. He's promised that he's going to do, he's going to save them in some sense, and that sense is, I think, the resurrection out from death. And then individually, he promises, if you believe, then he'll cleanse you. Everything will be made right between you and God for, for those that believe. And so to trust in God for those promises based off what he has already done for them. And this, to me, is part of that good news of the gospel. 
that he has already done for all sinners corporately in lifting up Christ, paying their penalty as a substitute, and he's urging sinners to trust in him for what he will do for any sinner who believes to cleanse them and so much more right on through to glorification in eternity and eternal life. So if a person does not resolve these two issues of sinfulness and God's wrath, then they face his eternal wrath for that sinfulness and enmity toward him by the second death, the lake of fire. And that's where, uh, to tie in from what we talked about earlier, uh, the resurrected body that Christ purchased, even for unbelievers, is an immortal body. I think that that argument can be made uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but also from the whole point of why the traditional and, the, and common view is an eternal conscious torment is that in the lake, even though they're cast into the lake of fire, they have a resurrected body that can withstand those fires. They feel yeah. the fire, but they are not consumed by the fire yeah. and nor by the worms that, Christ mentions that are going through them. So it's like the, it's like the body's, I don't know, constantly regenerating or something probably, but the, they, because of the resurrection, their bodies are also immortal, but because since their spirits were cleansed, they are still in sinfulness. Their, their spirit goes right back to basically in, in part they're they're still sinful. That wasn't dealt with. And, uh, and so they end up, under the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever because they didn't believe. So I urge anyone out there listening who doesn't believe to believe in what Christ has done for you because your eternal destiny does depend upon it. Yeah. Now that's where it gets really interesting. I think that, uh, the, this conversation, um, goes into and affects so many other aspects um, and uh, so many other doctrines, especially when we're we're talking about um, the eternal aspects of uh, of whether it's eternal condemna condemnation or it's eternal life, and uh, I I think what we need to do, if it ever gets to this, is uh, get you and Chris Date on the show, and we can hammer it out whether it's total annihilation or whether it's eternal conscious torment, and uh, I think that'd be a good time. But I do have a couple other questions for you, um, real quick. So for those of you um, who are considering, we've gone through all the different points. We've kind of given them a main summary of, of what the different views of the atonement are and uh, why the penal substitution uh, model is the, uh, is, is the model that's being considered and needs to be considered within um, uh, the extent of the atonement and, and how those two work together. But I guess my question is, Scott, um, is, is there a synthesis between your view and uh, that could resolve all or at least um, more of the mysteries on both sides of the debate, whether it's um, the particularist view or the provisionalist view or the partialist view. Um, how, does, how does this draw all, all of those together? And you, you, you can still hold your view um, as, as either a Calvinist or a provisionalist and still adopt um, this, this model for the extent of the atonement. Yeah, well, like a particularist, as I said, I think a particularist if, could adopt this view, and of course, 
in one sense, they wouldn't be a particularist anymore because now they're advocating for at least some aspect of the universal atonement. But if, if you see the two distinctions of what needed to be done for man to, to, to be able to be saved from the physical death, but also saved from the wrath of God and, and, and sinfulness of, of man themselves, that if you, uh, if you hold to an unconditional election as they do, you could still, th- that only affects, unconditional election really only affects that particular part. In other words, what makes one become a believer? Well, in, in, in a particularist view, usually that's going to be unconditional election. God has elected them from foundation of the world. And that can still all be true within the aspect of why a particular person comes to faith or not. If, if, that's, if, you know, if that's what you feel is the correct reading of Scripture. And yet still admit that, ah, the penal substitution aspect does, in fact, resolve why God resurrects anyone out of physical death to begin with. So I, I think, you know, from a particular perspective, one could adopt this and, and have, and then suddenly that, that opens up all those universal passages to be read universally and uh, those aspects. And plus one thing that's often common with particularists is they want to make sure that all three members of the Trinity are functioning in unity and harmony. And so they, they oftentimes will go to the, to a Trinitarian argument for why they hold to their limited particular atonement. But you can still, this fits that because God, the father intends to resurrect everyone. And he, and I believe he intended to do so. And that's the whole reason that he paid for people through Christ. Uh, Christ made that payment so that they could be resurrected and he would be ruling and reigning over them in, in a despotate way, probably. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit, I believe, is the, probably the one that in, enacts the resurrection itself. And so there, there's no disharmony within the Trinity from a particularist viewpoint. So obviously a particularist would have to come at it from their own views to see whether or not they feel like they could modify their views to fit or not. But I I think they could provisionalist, as I already noted that it solves the issue of substitution in my mind. Uh, It's not just this vague provision out there that's been made. There's something actual and effectual that God has done for people. And to me that for one, that enhances the gospel message. Um, Yeah. There's something salvific that God has done for them. Now, I tend to come from a little bit more of a uh, a conditional election point of view myself. I think in some ways it, it fits well, panatastasism fits well with that because there's actually something salvific been, that's been done for you. This is good news. Believe it. If you believe it, you get more. You know, if you come at it from an unconditional election point of view, you, you still have the same. Your issue's no different than what it is in a purely uh, limited atonement, particularist view. Yeah. You still kind of have the issue of, well, why did God not choose to elect those people versus others? 
but that's that's all that's all within the realm of election, which I think is a, a distinct thing to talk about separately from atonement in a lot of sense. Obviously, the partialist I think improves on their argument because it's it fits more with what Scripture is saying. You know that that death is the penalty for sin, resurrection is the whole salvation out of that death, and the question is, you know, do you stand before God and move into eternal life, or do you get uh, thrown to your second death into the lake of fire or not? And so the partialist just they can still hold to prevenient grace. I just don't think that it's penal substitution that, that paid for that, per se. It's, it's To me, that doesn't fit as well. Uh, to, for me, this fits better. And then, of course, the plenarist has got to, if they're going to change their view, they've got to admit, first of all, that not everyone ultimately gets saved in the fullest sense of the term. Uh, matter of fact, 1 Timothy 4.10 becomes a real problem for them, I think, because... What does that mean that there's a, a, a special salvation for believers yeah. if everyone ultimately ends up saved no matter what? I mean, I guess I guess a lot of universalists will say that ultimately everybody becomes a believer, even post-death, but I think that has its own other issues. So, good. Well, hey, I think this is a, a, a great way to end the podcast. I, I think, yeah, it is... Uh, very important and uh, that to talk about the extent of the atonement and I think it's important to rethink the extent of the atonement um, so I, I think that really um, you know there's there's a lot to think about here there's a lot to talk about here there's a lot to ponder um, but this is kind of just the surface for what we're going to go into as we continue this series um, so I, just a couple of questions for you um, some final closing thoughts that you want to leave with everyone and uh, finally, um, this, this last question is, what are we going to talk about in the next podcast? And uh, how can people reach out to you if they need to, or should they reach out to, to us through the podcast? So there's kind of three questions there. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. Final thoughts. Just, you know, I, I encourage people to at least think about this some and think about in, in whatever scheme you currently have, why does the resurrection occur at all? Uh, a lot of people will just lump it into kind of general grace or something, but I think that misses the whole point of the effect that death has in our lives, physical death has in our lives throughout history and so forth as a consequence, as a penalty consequence of sin. So just consider those things, uh, the thoughts that I've come come up with here, and, and see if if maybe this view fits better with what you think scripture says or not next time uh at least this the next podcast maybe a couple podcasts i'm not sure but we'll go into more scriptures to exegete some of the points that i make as to you know where do i get this idea from that for my particular aspects of the different things i stated regarding pananastasism and we'll, so we'll talk more about the specifics from some scriptures. As far as reaching out, the, uh, you, you have comments you can make, of course, for this podcast right now. And, and we may compile some of those and, and address major questions that people have, possibly even in this second podcast or, or one of these upcoming podcasts. I am working on getting a website 
up. Uh, it'll ultimately be a dispensary for various different aspects of defending this view of atonement. Uh, it'll be a while in building up towards all that. And so, but hopefully by next podcast, maybe I'll be able to give you a web address and, and an ability to contact me through, through that. So that would be one way to ask questions at a, at a future point. And I was going to say one other thing and I forgot what it was. Must be getting late. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hey, we'll think of it and uh, see if, yeah. So thanks again, Scott, for coming on, man. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while and uh, uh, just mostly because I think it ties some loose ends together for me uh, as I held um, a provisionalist perspective on the extent of the atonement. And this just, it draws it together for me. Um, and, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to next week, which is going to be next Tuesday, same time, 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, uh, when we get back together to talk about and exegete some of these particular passages. Um, I think for you theology nerds, you're, you, you love this stuff. You eat it up. Um, the general concept is great. I think we've got the general concept now. Uh, I think that there's um, something to be considered um, when it, when it, even considering the historical perspective of uh, Pananastasism, when it that that term itself may not have been used throughout history, but I think the general ideas um, have been used, and you're very familiar with. I mean, you're very familiar with resurrection. You're very familiar with uh, atonement and. The, and grace and all of these things that are encompass this view, but I think it kind of draws those things together. Um, and uh, even look at some of the historical quotes that I'm sure that we'll be able to get to um, that Scott puts in his dissertation. That you know, this is stuff that people have been talking about from the patristics all the way up through uh, the Reformation up to today. And uh, we need to consider and kind of rethink what the atonement itself is and who it's extended to. Uh, and what it means. So um, I think that's kind of let, the goal of this. But yeah, Scott, you, you had something. You yeah, let to me say just, there. I remembered what it was I was going to say, and because and, you mentioned it. For those that, that don't want to wait for the website, my dissertation is posted online at academiau.edu. Yes. Uh, probably the easiest way to find it would be to, to type in pananastasism, but then you have to know how to spell that. So just to be clear, that is spelled P A N. A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S-M. P-A-N-A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S-M. So if you looked up that in academiu.edu, you would find my dissertation. So if you're interested more in, in finding more information and more of the scriptural arguments and some of those things, you'll see that in that dissertation. That's um, which is that's how I found him. That's how I found uh, this this particular subject, and I was like, I've got to talk to this guy. Like this is so. Um, it, which there's a part two on there. The first part, which is what we're talking about here, is uh, you know it's only 515 pages, uh, and then uh, the second part. I have not read the second part. I'm looking forward to that. But anyways, um, I think this will be a good. Yeah, go ahead. I was say this, what you're calling the second part, it's really just a, a academic journal article I wrote that was a part of the dissertation that dealt with more the, the historical theology of people who held to these views. So I expanded upon my argument from my dissertation 
in a journal article that was published. And so that's the, the second part that you're referring to, so to speak. It's not really the second part. It's more of an expanded section. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, so guys, go check it out, academia.edu, and, uh, and uh, you'll be able to find Scott and his work there. So you can read it for yourself and uh, examine it a little bit further, get into the exegetical side. And uh, that's good. So this is a great first podcast laying the groundwork, guys. Uh, next week is going to be part two. Um, it'll be Tuesday, 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. But again, Scott, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to Thank having you. you back next week. I'm looking forward to it, too. All right. Hey, guys, I'm going to cut to my closing scene, and uh, we're going to wrap it up. So hopefully see everyone next week. Next week, yep. So... Hey, uh, again, thank you guys for staying tuned. We've got some troopers that are still on in the live stream. I'm going to do a better job about um, next week uh, presenting this and, and sharing the link in all of our uh, different um, platforms or different groups that you may be in that, so that you can view it live. And, and you may not get the notification in some of the different groups. Um, my software is not able to do that, but... I, there's, you're definitely going to be able to view this. It's just not going to be live. Um, so even if you're not viewing it live still, please send us your questions, your comments, and uh, we'll make sure and address those and, and uh, do it that way. So you can send us the voicemail, go into the podcast, click that link in the, in the description notes uh, to leave a voicemail. Those, are the, those will be the priority for us. Um, that way we can play the actual voicemail on on the podcast. So um, again, we've got some exciting things coming up on October 30th. Uh, Jeff Riddle and I are going to be talking about uh, the confessional text and uh, the ecclesiastical text position. Then we've got James Snap, uh, same conversation, different perspective uh, regarding the text of scripture. So those will be good conversations. I think it'll be challenging. It's going to be um, you know, really some exciting things that are coming up. This series uh, with Scott Smith, I'm really looking forward to it. Next week is going to be good with episode episode two, getting into the text itself and the exegetical side. So, guys, thanks again. God bless, and I hope, uh, I hope you got a good week. So we'll see you next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Central Standard Time. Have a good night.